The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one or to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. All right. Thank you, Nate. Well, we're in the series, Doubting Christianity, where we've been looking at seven core reasons for non-belief. And today's, I'm just going to be honest with you, it's it's kind of rattled me um, as I've been preparing uh, because it's, it's, haven't Christians hurt a lot of people and the, uh, the reality is the, the only honest answer that you can give to that question is yes. Yes, historically, organizationally, institutionally, individually, uh, Christians have hurt a lot of people. Uh, it's just there's no getting around that. And it's important that we look at it. It's important that we own it. Uh, I was thinking of, a, of something that happened in, in my life so this would have been about half my life ago when I, my wife and I had just gotten married. We were living in Bellevue. Uh, we had just relocated here, and I was working at a garden center in town uh, as a landscaper. And I was taking seminary classes at night, and the place where I worked was, was really accommodating with that, and they would let me leave early to go to the seminary classes at a church down the street uh, on certain days of the week, and... and, and uh, and anyway, I, I love being a landscaper. It's one of my favorite things. Um, I love doing 
outdoor work. And I, I would get to the garden center early, and sometimes I was the first person there, and I would open up. And one morning I drove in, it was in the autumn, and uh, I drove in, and um, in the parking lot, as I was walking through the parking lot to go down this little bridge across this little creek to where the garden center was, I saw $20 on the ground. And I thought, awesome, I found $20 on the ground. And so I, I picked it up, and I, you know, I looked around, there was, there was, you know, put it in my pocket. We were right next door to a Sonic. I went to Sonic and got lunch for myself with that $20 and didn't eat the peanut butter and jelly that I had packed. And then later that afternoon, my, my boss came to me and said, did you find $20? Um, near the bridge on the entrance. Somebody came last night after hours and needed a, wanted a pumpkin, and they just took one and called and left and, and said they left $20 under a rock in the parking lot. And I lied. I lied about it. Because I still had, like, the tater tots covered in cheese in my teeth, <laughs> right? And I said, no, I didn't, I didn't see $20. The seminary student. And... And I, I slunk away across the street, and my conscience was just eating at You know, I'm having that kind of existential crisis of, on the one hand, I didn't steal. I found $20 on the ground. You know, like, what do you do? Do you just, did anybody, I, you know, did anybody lose this? I, and yet, when I, was conf- when I was asked about it, my instinct was to deceive and I eventually, I went back to my boss, and I, I just had to confess. I said, listen, I lied to you earlier. I did, I did find $20. I, it, it just was on the ground, right by where we were walking in. I'm sure that's what that was from. Um, and uh, I'm sorry. I spent it on Sonic, <laughs> you know? Uh, and I remember she looked at me, and she said, you never... And I was like, oh, no, what's going to happen, you know? What should, and, and she said, you, you never complain about anything we ask you to do. You show up on time, you stay late, you leave, you know, don't worry about it. It's, and thank you for, I appreciate your honesty in, in circling back and telling the truth. But that moment was a hard one for me. And I bet that you have these moments in your life too. And I'll bet that you, like me, have these moments in your life where, where you didn't confess the deception. And what's hard about moments like that is that it's not that all of the sudden something new came out of me that wasn't there before. It's in moments like that you see something come out of you that was there the whole time. You know? It just... It, I didn't have to figure out how to deceive. It just happened. I just did it. I dishonored my boss's trust. She was gracious, but I had to look at that hard truth that, that, that I can't say because I'm a seminary student or now because I'm a pastor that I am devoid of duplicity, deception, uh, this capacity to hurt people. And neither are you And that's how I want to set the table for answering the question and engaging with the question, haven't Christians hurt a lot of people? Because we will fail in talking about this question if we just start thinking, yeah, those people who did the Crusades, they just were way off, and all these people who have done all the... Because listen, we're complicit 
And if we want to represent Christianity in a faithful way, one of the things we have to represent is our need for forgiveness and our need for a Savior. So I go first in confessing that deception to you and saying, as far as I know, that is not completely eradicated from my life. Our question poses this. Who are we going to be in this world? Who are we going to be in this world where we have this incredible capacity to hurt each other? Who are we going to be as individuals? Who are we going to be Christ Pres Cool Springs as a church that, that, is, that is becoming a community knitted together and beginning to serve a part of the city and the town that we, that, we, that we love. It's an awesome thing that we have to be able to do this. So, so I start with that. Let me unpack this passage from James because I think James here is kind of getting at the heart of why Christians hurt people. And it's also getting at the heart of why people hurt people. It's not unique to Christians. Um, James was written by Jesus' half-brother. Same mom, different dads. During Jesus' earthly ministry, James thought Jesus was deluded. He did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He uh, was indignant when Jesus would carry himself as though he was more important in the grand scheme of things than James was. And then Jesus is crucified and resurrected and James then becomes a key leader and believer in the early church. And James is one of these people who he has, he has skin in the game. James is a guy who would have had no patience for the participation trophy, right? He it just... It, he would have just, you could have heard his eye rolling from across the room at this idea that you know you have skin in the game. And you, when it comes to faith, he was just unimpressed by words alone. And we see this at the end of today's text. He says, Faith without works is dead. And it's not that our good works make faith real, it's that they prove that it's real. It's a demonstration, right? It, it flows out of something that is real. Works, in other words, works don't generate faith, they demonstrate faith. The peach proves the peach tree, right? It demonstrates what it is. So one of the good works that James highlights throughout his letter is he highlights the good work of the active humility of loving and serving people who are different from you, specifically the poor. And we saw that in this passage that we read, that James comes down really firmly on this. To ignore the poor, James says, is favoritism. And when you favor the wealthy, that's a clear sign that a person has grossly misunderstood the gospel. Because what they've done is they have assumed that wealth separates people into different categories of worth. Did you know Williamson County is the seventh wealthiest county 
in America, which is the wealthiest nation on the planet. So admittedly, this is going to be hard for us to get our minds around. James says, Jesus is the Lord of glory. Jesus is the Lord of glory. And so under that rubric, it means that we're all poor. (laughs) If he's the Lord of glory, we're all poor. And so favoring the rich over the poor is actually settling for a lesser glory. It's settling for a material glory, a carnal glory, a a man-made glory, man's glory over God's glory. And it's just worth our time to say and to ask ourselves the question before the Lord, what are some ways that we have done this even this week? What are some ways that I have favored the glory of man over the glory of God? What are some ways that I have separated people out into categories of you have greater worth than you do? Because we've all probably done this in some way. And James is warning us. He's warning us it's evil It's evil to put yourself in the place of judging somebody's worth over another person's worth. It's just an evil thing to do. And then we see God works through the poor. And he works through the poor. He chooses the poor to be rich in faith. And poor people have room for this kind of wealth because they're not already encumbered by the wealth of this world. So to be rich in Christ is something. It's hard for us to understand in Williamson County because because our normal is one, (laughs) hear me on this, our normal is one where most people around us are doing well materially. That's our normal. Most people around us are doing well materially. Let me pour some salt in that just for a quick second. If you're like me, you may have just felt a little catch in your spirit that said, well, I don't know if I would say doing well. Because we can always think of people who are doing more well. Right? Listen, if you, <laughs> if you can turn on a faucet and water comes out that you can drink, and you can haul your trash to the end of your driveway and somebody else will come get it and take it away for you, you're doing well. If you can go to a medicine cabinet when you have a headache and take a pill for it, you're doing well. If you can wash your clothes in a machine that plugs into a wall that has electricity coming through it, you're doing well. You, I could go on and on and on, but the thing, the thing we, have to, we have to understand is we're just, we're wealthy. And Scripture says a lot about wealthy people. And one of the things it says about wealthy people is it's really, really hard to enter the kingdom of God because you can't worship God in money and wealthy people have a hard time not worshiping things. And by worshiping meaning, I find my hope, I find my confidence, I find my self-assurance in knowing that I'm okay financially, materially. So, I'm standing in some of your living rooms right now, I know that, and, and I am in my own as well, and I'm guilty of this, but let's just own it. Let's just own that that's the struggle that we have, because it has to do with the question. Haven't Christians hurt a lot of people? 
How, what does it have to do with that question? Well, James is getting to the root of why people hurt people, why we hurt each other. It's why we hurt those outside the faith. It's because of the sin of superiority. It's that I believe that I have extra special entitlement to things others don't. A friend of mine calls this the sin of exceptionalism, that my case is not like your case. It's unique, and it should be unique in the eyes of God. It's the sin of superiority. We favor some over others. We favor ourselves the most. And then what we do if we're Christians or if we're religious people is we dress that superiority up in religious clothing so that it actually looks like the right thing to do. And we start saying things like, well, actually what God wants from us is he wants to live separated. He wants us to live separate lives from the world. And so I kind of have to be in this community or I have to engage with only these kind of people or I have to, you know, all these different things that we'll talk ourselves into and we'll say, well, this is really what God wants me to do. But what separates the true Christian What sets a true Christian apart is not superiority. It's need. What sets a true Christian apart is need. An awareness, an honest awareness of our poverty of spirit apart from the grace and the mercy of God. And an awareness of the crazy abundance of wealth that is ours in the mercy and grace of God, which is not something we corner the market on. So, when our sense of need and having that perfectly met in Christ drives us, Christians will give themselves away for the sake of others. But let me say something really strong. When we're driven by a sense of superiority, when Christian people are driven by a sense of superiority, we will at best become self-absorbed and useless, and we will at worst become antichrists, denying and concealing the gospel from people. Humility is key. Do we need to take a breath? I'm sorry, this is heavy. But it's important. It's important for us to understand because we have to engage this question from a place of humility and say, Christians are as in need of what Christianity offers as anybody else is. And so in this series, I've been, I've been really kind of mindful as I've been putting these sermons together. When you do an apologetics type of sermon series, you can go a couple of different ways in terms of tone, right? And one of them is you can just use this as an opportunity to just dunk on people who don't believe what you believe, right? And so you can just set up the straw man, knock it down, and laugh at the fool. But I don't want to do that because... I'm really trying to avoid an us versus them mentality in this approach because we're taking up questions that people raise concerning the validity of the Christian faith and it's been important to me to avoid this us versus them mentality because many of the questions that people who are unfamiliar with Christianity raise 
are really valid questions to ask, especially in a pluralistic culture and in a social media age where actions and words are on display without context everywhere you look. And so having an us versus them mentality, it just seldom advances the conversation at all in any meaningful way. What it usually does is it leads to mischaracterization of those who believe differently. You just set the other side up as fools with easy arguments to knock down and then you just knock them down. And, and, and that usually is not treating people with intellectual integrity and it's also something that just robs people that we might see as quote unquote them. We rob them of the dignity and the respect that they deserve as image bearers of God. But another reason that I've wanted to avoid an us versus them tone is because I'm really uncomfortable with the us. What I mean by that is right now there are public figures who have come to represent evangelical Christianity. I'll put that in quotes, evangelical Christianity. And they're called upon to speak publicly on behalf of evangelical Christians everywhere. And they don't represent me. No one person can speak accurately on behalf of millions, lumping people together. It just dilutes and it distorts. Because here's the thing, in a very certain sense, I identify as an evangelical Christian. But when I look at some of the celebrities who represent evangelical Christians in the media, I, I want to say I, they don't speak for me on the issues you're asking about. They don't speak for me. Often, the, I, I feel like they don't even represent the values of what I believe is biblical Christianity. There is an us. It's the church. Right? There is such a thing as the church. But the church is not a collection of people who are bound together by what they oppose. When that's our common ground, what we do is we just turn inward and we fight. We even fight each other over things that are dumb. And we're bound by what we receive. We're bound by what we receive. And that is the grace of Christ. Imagine if that was the church's legacy in the world in the public eye, is that we're known for being people who readily confess our need for the mercy and grace of Christ, marvel at the fact that we've received it, and then seek to love the world with that same kind of mercy and grace. I guess a third reason that I've tried to avoid this us versus them mentality is I'm just not against people who don't believe like I do. I'm for them. I'm supposed to be, right? This is what... Jesus says is the great, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. I, I want everybody that I interact with to love Jesus. I can't make one single person I interact with, not even my own kids, love Jesus. But I want it. I'm called to love people. You're called to love people. Even people who disagree with you. Even people who oppose what you believe. 
We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. I want to go even deeper, and I want to say this. I'm kind of talking about this us versus them mentality because I think this is an area where Christians will often separate and segregate uh, for the purpose of feeling good about themselves, feeling superior, um, by counting ourselves as having some kind of wealth, whether it's intellectual, theological, material, whatever, that other people don't have and then we'll feel good about it. So we can say there's these groups of them who believe different things. But here's the problem is even with the us, if you, if you take an us versus them, you have a problem with your us. Even if it's people who agree with you and run in the circles you run in. So in the circles I run in, I am a Presbyterian pastor in America, right? I'm Reformed. I'm a Calvinist. Did you know that? I am. In the circles I run in, in the ones I wrap my arms around and say, these are my people, leaders fall. They cheat on their spouses. They embezzle money. They drive drunk. They hire prostitutes. They plagiarize. They abuse opioids. They bully their staffs. They take advantage of the weak. They manipulate. They shame. They gaslight. They deceive. They devalue those who don't share their views or fall in line. In the circles I run in, And there's something I should add, and I do so with great sobriety of heart, is that I don't know if I will make it to the end of my days as a pastor free from scandal, real or perceived. I pray that I do. I plead with the Lord that I will. But I've been around long enough to know that that's something God knows, and I'm capable. That's what I know, I'm capable of all these kinds of sins. I'm capable of doing worse things than lying about finding $20 on the ground. I read this week about a pastor who allegedly tried to hire a hitman to take out a critic. We're all capable of unspeakable pain, of causing unspeakable pain toward one another. Brings us to the question, haven't Christians hurt a lot of people? I think I got us safely in the, in the courtyard of this question, but the answer is a resounding yes, right? Here's some ways. Here's some ways that Christians have done this historically. We've been complicit in systemic racism, including the supporting of slavery, but also continuing on to this day, and we're blind if we don't see that. If you're a white person and you doubt this, befriend a black pastor and ask them, what's the complicity of Christians in America and systemic racism. Ask, and then listen. That's the other important part. You, you ask, and then you have to just sit down and listen. We've conflated, here's another one. We've conflated Christianity with politics. Believing politicians can save us. Believing that God votes with a particular party. Promoting one particular party as Christian, and another as wicked. I I didn't know a Democrat growing up. I didn't know them in my little town. There there weren't any. And and so I didn't know that they existed. And so they were cartoonish in my mind. Um, And I just... What I will push on is equivocating Christianity with politics and political parties. Um, Because 
the Savior is not in Washington. The Crusades. Mandatory conversion to Christianity is part of the Crusades. Convert or die. That's problematic. Um, <laughs> the prosperity gospel, right? Fleecing the poor while promising them wealth. The endless infighting and bickering that happens among Christians over things that are inconsequential to salvation and inconsequential to loving our neighbor. Happens all the time. Abusive leadership. The abuse of children in the church. A lack of integrity when characterizing the other side of something. Tim Keller made this statement. I think it it bears saying. He says, it may be true that the press takes too much pleasure in publicizing the moral failings of religious leaders, but it doesn't create them. Church officials seem to be at least, if not more, corrupt than leaders in the world at large. We have to hear that. So here's the question. We've been dressed down now, right? Does the fact that people have done great harm in the name of Christianity delegitimize the faith? Or does it actually highlight a fundamental misunderstanding of what Christianity really is and then prove our desperate need for Jesus? All of these things that we listed and we've talked about are things that really, at their essence, are favoring myself over others. All these things give the benefit of the doubt to self and withholds it from others. They look to personal merit for eternal security, not the merit and mercy of Christ. And all of them come from a fear of what is unknown. But here's the thing that's true about everything I've said so far. These harmful realities don't belong exclusively to Christians. They're everywhere. They're part of every religion. They're part of even atheism, which is a religion. To make a sweeping declaration that there is no God is a profoundly theological thing to say about God. These realities are in every country. They're in every generation. They're in every race. They're in every religion. They're in every political system. In other words, they are in every person. Hypocrisy is everywhere. The fact of the existence of evil doesn't refute Christianity. What it does is it exposes the human heart. And this is precisely what Christianity addresses. Is God taking a heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh and doing it because somebody lived and died in our place and took our sin upon himself? God, have mercy. Thanks be to God, right? And so to land, and we are landing this, I, I thought about how do, you, how do I close a sermon like this? Because there's a million ways that we could go. And where I think the Lord is leading me, and so that's what I'm going to do, is I'm going to focus on landing this by by talking to us as a group and not just as individuals. 
to us as Christ Prez Cool Springs. Um, if you're around me, you, you know that a lot of the application that I give in sermons can be very personal. Uh, it can be very uh, specific to the individual. How do you go and apply this to your own heart? How, do, how does this change your thinking? How does this change the way that you interact uh, with other people? Um, and that's a good thing to do. And yet at the same time, I've been thinking this week, how does this topic apply to us as a body, as a community that is coming together? And so I want to I end on that because we have this opportunity as Christ Prez's Cool Springs location to be a community of people who are together seeking to represent Christ well in our community and around our, our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers, to be, to be light in darkness, to be one body that's made up of many parts. Did you know that Scripture's audience is never individual, it's always plural, Scripture is never written to some guy. It's always written to people. You, and you Bible nerds may be saying, well, Luke and Acts is. It's written to dear Theophilus. Yeah, but listen. It's in the canon of Scripture for the church. It's not just written for Theophilus, right? Scripture is addressed to a plurality of people. It's addressed to Christians at large, right? And so we read the... the the, the language of the Bible, when it says, when it's speaking to you, it's speaking to the southern y'all, right? It's not just you and, as an individual, but to us collectively. We're eight months into gathering. Eight months in. It's been fun. I've loved this. It's been a highlight of my life as a minister. Many of our relationships in this room are new. They've got the new relationship kind of feel, right? We're, we're not sure if we offended each other when we j- made that joke. We're, we're kind of finding our way. But they're growing who are we going to be to each other a year from now, five years from now? Who are we going to be to our neighbors? Who are we going to be to our city? Knowing that Christians have caused a lot of harm historically, but guess what? People have caused a lot of harm historically, and part of our call is to be salt and light, to be a city on a hill, to be a light in the darkness. When Christians live in isolation, we, we think of ourselves above others. We measure ourselves against others. When we see ourselves as part of a community that's made stronger because we're all in this together, we have this opportunity to shine even more brightly, this antithesis to the truth that Christians have this incredible capacity to wound and devalue others. And so I want to ask us, just as we're moving into the summer, as we're moving into the end of a fiscal year, which is probably meaningless to most of you, it's not to me, uh, because it kind of marks the one year of, of getting this thing going, that, that I want to ask us to pray through something, and that is this. What would it look like for Christ Prez, the Cool Springs location, to be light and love and support to our community moving forward? What would it look like for us as a group of people banded together around the hope of the gospel to serve and to love in that way? What would you do differently if you thought of yourself not just as an individual but as a part of a church that exists in a place, a body of Christ on earth? How would that shape how you engage with this church, how you engage with your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends? How would this shape your habits of personal worship, Monday through Saturday, through time in scripture and prayer, generosity, service. What if Sunday morning was a just a can't-miss part of the week for those who call Christ Prez Cool Springs home? 
there's this statistic floating around that average church attendance in evangelical churches is about 1.8 times a month. And Christ Prez, we, we have, you know, we have, we, we keep track on a computer of things. We're beating that by a little bit. We're probably about 2.2 times per month um, across all three locations. So what that means is, is, is a great number of people who call Christ Prez home come to church once or twice a month at the most. I'd like to see that number be higher. Um, I'm not saying there aren't legitimate reasons to not be at church, and I cave in on myself at the thought of shaming from the pulpit, but at the same time, it's an important number to consider because we're building something here, and we're building something that is, has the potential to be deep and, and lasting for the sake of loving God and loving neighbor. Imagine if we're known throughout this community as a group of people who are united for our neighbors and not against them. Um, I believe that's what the Lord wants us to be. I believe that's what he's doing. I believe that's why we're here. Um, and that's what he's building. And I think we often lose sight of that. Um, I think I lose sight of that sometimes. Um, but I believe that when we give our lives away for the church and that it's not just one of the dozen other things that we have going on, but it's a vital part of the rhythm of life and friendship and worship and service, then what happens is we become a fellowship of people who are collectively pushing back against the darkness and the Lord is working in our midst in ways that are beautiful. Yes, Christians have caused a lot of harm, but they've also contributed a tremendous amount of good. And that never happens in isolation. And it never happens when you're only kind of engaged and it certainly never happens when you're self-absorbed. It happens when we live not as a people who have a church, but as a people who are a church. And so pray that this would be our legacy together for Christ Prez's Cool Springs location, that God would use us for good for decades to come, that he would give us a footprint in this community, and ask then what that might look like for you as a part of this church and that he would be glorified in all that he does. Pray with me. Lord, I am thankful for the paradox of the gospel that those who enter into a relationship with you are sinful people in need of a savior, broken, lost, apart from your mercy and your grace, and yet the hope that we have is something that we can be so confident in because of the way you work and the way you keep us and the way that you have redeemed us so perfectly and completely through the work of Christ on our behalf. And Lord, in your providence, it was your idea to make the local church, to bring these communities together and to say of us that we would be your body, that we'd be your hands and feet, your eyes and your ears, that we would speak your words to people, to each other. And uh, Lord, that's not a small thing. And uh, so thank you for that. Thank you for calling us to that. And uh, I ask, Lord, that you would now engage our minds and our hearts with you as we think about and pray about uh, who you're making us into as a church. Um, Lord, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, I pray that you would remind us again 
of not only the sacrifice that has been made to call us into relationship with you, but also uh, the invitation that has been given for us to have a seat at your table uh, without fear. And uh, it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.